If there was one thing SBJ got right, and he got a lot of things right, it was choosing that as our intro song. It always makes me happy and like sort of gets me pumped up to be on the show or if I hear it. It's just a very like coming home kind of song. I like it. I like it a lot. I think you nailed it. Anytime I'm doing workout in the yard, I just play that. Mm -hmm. Anytime I'm about to have sex, about to get into a fight, or about to defend my belt in the WWE. It's hard. Gets me going. You can never underestimate a good pump-up song. I never would have thought that the Tuesday night podcast intro music would be my pump-up music. I always thought it would be something else. What about you, Sean? Have you had some pump-up music? Do you know which one it would be? What would be your theme? What's that song by Disturbed where they're like, let the bodies hit the flow, let the bodies hit the flow. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. That's not my pump up song. But I have found in the gym that the douchier the music is, the easier it is to work out to. If you've got some like club banger sleeping around, getting hammered, passing out in an alleyway track, that's great to lift weights to. (laughs) I don't know why, but it just it just gets me in the right headspace to pump some iron. It's just like, this is all I have in my life is how I look and my physique. I just got to yeah. focus on this and this alone. I think it puts you in the right headspace. To, to, just to as do shallow it. as possible. Yeah. My life is limited to just how I look and I'm going to look good. Hmm. <sighs> it's good compartmentalization, I think is what it is. <laughs> Welcome to the Jews and I podcast. <laughs> This is the podcast all about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, uh, around, and even under the gaming table. We're in episode 128, Shawnee boy. Man, that's a lot. That's a ton of content. And we're going to have even more on this episode because we want to talk about our next Kickstarter, which is coming up super soon, we hope. Map fantastic. That's not lemonade. And... We're going to do a little bit of interaction satisfaction, answering some emails, and I really hope we have a chance to knight somebody. That's a lot. That's jam-packed. So we should just probably jump right into it then, shouldn't we? Let's do it. Excuse me, Sam. Do you have the time? But of course, it be topic time. That's not Lemonade. Kickstarter. Where are we at? So you have... Pretty much all the art done. If you don't know at home audience, Alan is art directing That's Not Lemonade. And he's doing a fantastic job. He's found a really great artist named Kelsey. What's her last name again? It's Kelsey Kretcher. And that's a very important distinction. I'm art directing. I'm not sitting at my desk drawing the pictures for the cards. This is not my art, but it's Kelsey Kretcher's art. And she's a gem, man. I found her at the local Cleveland Comic Con. And she traditionally does drawings of ladies. I was blown away, sent it your way, and you said, Nah, let's uh, get somebody else. And I said, screw you, Sean. I'm the art director here. You go blow a taco stand sky high with your ridiculousness. 
I don't know, but that's a pretty accurate description of the way we talk when people aren't listening. <laughs> that's usually <laughs> us. Anyway, you were saying we got the art. It mm-hmm. looks magnificent. Total homage to the 50s. And how splendid. And now with extra, if you know those commercials, leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. Mm-hmm. Because the story to That's Not Lemonade is everyone has an amazing lemonade stand, but that's the problem. There's not enough room for all these successful lemonade stands in the neighborhood. So all these lemonade entrepreneurs decide, let's have a lemonade competition. Who can drink their own stuff the most and the quickest and whoever can drink the most wins. But that just translates into a very simple and quick Press your luck game. It's you mad, bro. Rethemed. That's exactly what it is. We're excited. We're working on the Kickstarter video right now with Board With Life, who we're always really excited to get a chance to work with. Speaking of which, total tangent side note, Board With Life, you were just on their Board With Life adventures. They wanted to run a heist role-playing game, and so you played your role-playing game that you designed and made called... Stealing things. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we, I ran my game Heist, which is in prototype playtesting phase right now. We did uh, three episodes with Board with Life, which was really exciting. A lot of fun, very humorous sort of heist. Three people, one GM. I've gotten a lot of good feedback. Even the first night, Sir Byron Morgan said he really liked it. He'd like us to do more of that kind of content on our show, playtesting, doing role-playing games. So if you listen to it on Board with Life Adventures, the heist episodes, and you like it, write in. And let us know whether that's something we should should do more or not. It was hilarious. Nikki is a comedic genius. I just am stating facts at this point. Her <laughs> character is so amazing. But all right, shut up. Time back in. That's not lemonade. What's the tagline that we came up with for that's not lemonade? The short and sweet yellow treat. I thought it was the yellow treat that's short and sweet. Which is it? We will see when we find out what fits on the box. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're trying to cram all that together. And our big deadline is we want this game to be available by Gen Con, right, Uh Sean? Yeah, so we're under a huge time crunch. That's why we don't really have a date for the Kickstarter yet, though it will probably be in May. We don't have an exact date yet because it's going to come down to just minutes of like getting the Kickstarter video done. We've gotten the art done. We've done the play testing. We've gotten all the everything worked out with the manufacturer. They said we're good to go for a Gen Con deadline. So we've done all the homework. Now we're just like minute by minute getting closer to hitting that launch button. Yeah, because screw professionalism, man. We like to fly by the seat of our pants. Let's do it. Minute by minute decisions. It's like Red October down here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. I think it's a binge buy because the coolest thing is the price point is going to be really low. We are really amazed with working with our manufacturer and how we're able to get as much quality into the game with a minimum price as possible. Because inevitably, we have to sell these to people at conventions. At what point are people going to say, go screw yourselves, versus at what point do people say, oh, I, I can't afford not to buy this game. It's so nice. And we want to get that sweet spot. What is your favorite part that comes in the box, Sean? Ooh, uh... <laughs> I'm fishing for something. You're my shill. I know what you want me to say, but I know what I want to say. I mean, my favorite part is, of course, the game comes with six shot glass sized red solo plastic cups. Boom! If you've ever seen those. 
hook, line, and sinker. That's what I was fishing for. Yeah, so <laughs> you originally wanted the tagline, the drinking game for kids, which is hilarious, but I was worried marketing-wise if that was representative enough, too offensive. I don't want any family to miss out on playing this game because they I don't want them to say, oh man, we'd play that game, but I don't want to tell my kids we're playing a drinking game. But anyway, what are you going to say? If it's not the shot glasses, I'm sorry, if it's not the miniature solo cups, what is it then? Uh, the game comes with a plastic insert that holds all the components, and I spent a lot of time designing that. You're talking about the vacuum tray? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just haven't done one before, and it was a real pleasure to work with our manufacturer like on all those details, making sure the components fit, that they're nice and snug. That was fun for me, the publisher. It's not something to be excited about as a, a buyer of games, but <laughs> other than writing better rules so games are quicker to get to the table and easier to learn, I think having boxes that organize your components for you and make it easy to put the game up and take it out again is like the number two thing that you can do to make your board game better outside of just like designing a fun game is like make it easy to learn and make it easy to put away. It's a testament to how geeky we are because of how excited we are about the box. You design the box and it's great because it's the same height and depth as all our other games, Two Rooms in a Boom and World Championship Russian Roulette. But it's the same depth it is width, so it's like a long cube. I don't know. How would you describe it? We're doing this like Russian nesting doll situation where like each game that we make is divisible by boxes we've already created. So basically, if you took a copy of Two Rooms at a Boom and you cut it in half, that's about the size of the box we're going. Very miniature, very portable because it's a very light game. In fact, this game we found does really well at like one or two in the morning with people at conventions. Yes. We're floating terms like an open table game where you can get up, leave, somebody else can come in and you could just keep playing the game all night. Which World Championship Russian Roulette is, and we never even coined that term. Hopefully it catches on. I love the open table concept. You never have to wait for someone to show up to the party because they can just join in in the middle of the game. Or if someone says, it's not really my thing, you can say you don't have to keep playing and we don't have to stop playing just because you want to go pee or poop or something like that. Basically the opposite of risk. You cannot just leave or join a game of risk. <laughs> right. One person leaves risk. It's over unless you just totally eradicated them. So that that's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Geeky about boxes. All right. We're we're already behind schedule, Sean, if we're going to do all this. Let's do some interaction satisfaction where we answer listener emails. Howdy. It's time for interaction satisfaction. Shoot us your emails, your comments, or your questions. We'll do our best to answer them. How about that cowboy segment, by the way? You like that? Ha! Yes. <laughs> I'm actually going to start with controversy, if you will, because last mm. episode I had on Dan Yarrington. And you've met Dan Yarrington. We've talked to Dan Yarrington. He's most well known for Game Salute, the publishing slash Kickstarter help company. Did you listen to last episode, Sean? Yes. Did you really? You're shitting me. You did not listen. I'm shitting you. Okay. <laughs> okay. You are shitting. <laughs> but I have spent many hours talking to Dan about uh, shipping and the board game industry and all that sort of stuff. Well, I got a couple messages in one specific email. Ooh. But it says... I love your podcast. I think it's one of the best board game podcasts out there. Great email. Let's move on yeah. to the next one. Moving on. <laughs> I appreciate the effort you put into it and think it really shows. However, the moment I saw the name Dan Yarrington in the title of the podcast, 
I knew I was going to get angry listening to it. Having listened to the whole thing, he basically owned up to some vaguely defined mistakes, in quotes. Express as being too nice of a guy to say no and a bit off more than he could chew. In other words, Kickstarters, while spending the majority of the time not being accountable and blaming everyone else for getting angry at him and making him feel bad. He didn't address at all the reasons that people are angry at him. It's not because of the lengthy delays, although that's certainly part of it, but that he, and here's what's in bold, lied repeatedly on numerous projects. No longer in bold. He claims that things were at the printer when the art wasn't even complete. I was a backer of Two Rooms and a Boom, and you guys were totally late delivering on the Kickstarter, but you were very honest and communicative the whole time about the reason for the delays, and that's totally fine and understandable. Great email. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Stop there. But here's the two main things that this knave that wrote in was upset about that contribute to his terrible reputation. Said so number one, there was a lawsuit filed by Zev Schlesinger where he was found guilty of breach of contract by jury. Number two, the way Ship Naked dealt with the fulfillment of Phil Eklund's games. And this writer says they made mistakes but stuck him with the cost of these mistakes. Were you not aware of the above, Alan? If not, a quick Google search should have given you the details. If you were aware, why didn't you bring it up in the interview? And he goes on to say he loves the podcast, yet this episode worried him. Uh, he's not sure what the word he's looking for is, but he's just worried that the podcast could mislead people because none of the truly bad stuff was brought up in the podcast. Ah. So I definitely feel like I need to respond to that. And it's not going to be a good answer because my answer is we didn't do our homework. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, I totally knew about the reputation that Dan had for being late. I've had plenty of other designers come on and say, yeah, you know, they weren't really upfront about being late. And he totally addressed those issues about being late. But I didn't know about the lawsuit filed by Zev Schlossinger or what it was about. And I didn't know about the ship naked deal with Phil Uckland. Eklund, I'm so sorry if I'm slaughtering your name, Phil. But I've since looked into it, and I've since reached out to Dan to see if he would like to respond. He can't right now because he's at the Gathering Friends in Niagara Falls. But I think Dan will actually come out. And there, if there's one thing I've learned, it's not to judge people by what other people have said about that person. It's only through my own personal accounts. Now, don't get me wrong. It's impossible not to be suspicious of someone if I've had several people say, hey, watch your back when dealing with this person. But at the same point, I'm not just going to totally buy into that from my own personal experience. I'm curious if the listeners fear is that we're somehow normalizing working with Game Salute or Ship Naked by having them on the show and allowing him this way to like air grievances out and not really respond to some of the harsher criticism. I'm not entirely sure what our responsibility is there, particularly, you know, I just don't know. I'm not saying I have a good idea or a bad idea there, but I'm not I'm not sure what a that's something we need to look into and think about as a podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, well, let's look at it at its most malicious, and then let's look at it at its most benevolent. I think the most malicious thing going on here is definitely an attempt to numb the masses and pull wool over people's eyes and convince them to do things that they shouldn't morally be doing, that you're buying into something and all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, Soylent Green is people, I've been eating people. Something like that is at... It's most maleficent. And the most benevolent, it's just, hey, we're just here and having fun and talking to people and letting people say what they want to say. And we're 
trying to do, I don't know, what's our most benevolent role here, Sean? If you're taking the assumption that Dan like did something criminally wrong, if that's like the position you're coming from, then the best case scenario that we're hoping to do is nothing. Go, we just talked to this guy and it's, you know, a puff piece, right? Maybe people could learn about how the process works. People make mistakes and they grow, and this is a chance to to own up to those mistakes and grow. I haven't looked into it the way you've looked into it or the way this reader has looked into it, and I haven't been affected by it. Dan's worked pretty well with me. The truth of the matter is, Sean, and I'll let you finish, and I apologize. I feel bad because had I known that, I totally would have asked him. I don't know if that's the podcast we're going to be. Not because like we don't believe in it. I just don't know if we have it in us to like hold people's feet to the fire when they come on our show. And maybe that's like a bad thing for the industry. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, there's some soul searching there about how we're going to approach guests and, you know, their track record in the future. Our tagline is the stories we make while playing the games we love. And this is stories within the industry. I like to think we're very, I don't want to say Switzerland, because then it makes it sound like we're Larry King and just puff pieces. But realistically, I think Dan, as a human being, at least deserves a chance to respond. And that's why I reached out to Dan right away and said, hey, this is what's going on. This is what is being asked. I totally would love to hear what you have to say. And even told him he's welcome to say no comment because that is a response. I'm not even trying to pressure Dan, but just the little I know about Dan and what he said on last episode, I think he'd have no problem coming on and saying, hey, listen. And I can even tell you, Sean, and the listeners listening to this, what my research found out about these two issues, since I have then retroactively looked up these two issues. It doesn't sound great, but I also don't think it's as damning as some people would make it out to be. For instance, I'll just give you one little taste. He was indeed found guilty of breach of contract by a jury. And the jury said that Dan now owes nothing. Meaning they're like, he's guilty. How much money does he owe? Zero dollars. They assessed zero dollars in damages. Literally, if you Google Dan Yarrington lawsuit, it comes first thing pops right up. Dan Yarrington contract. It's the first thing that comes up. And you can actually read the scanned in copy of the verdict by the jury. And it says, guilty or innocent? Guilty. How much money? Zero. So Dan owes no money. And this was between Zev of Z-Man Games. Wow. My research has told me that there are three individuals that wanted to make a store. And Dan at the time was more of a retailer. And so this is like another retail chain that they're opening. And he was a party of it. Again, I don't know enough. I'm not doing my homework enough here, but I thought it worthy enough to bring up and say, hey, probably next episode in episode 129, we'll have more news on this. You want to hear the next or do you have more thoughts? No, let's move on. Here we go. Why don't you tell the next email? What's the story behind this next email, Sean? I don't know. I'm talking about Caitlin's email. Caitlin sent an email. Yes, we got an email from uh, Caitlin. She's a university student and she sent an email in wanting to interview us with you know some questions for her class i forwarded over to alan i thought oh this would be fun to you know we'll just email back to her and alan had the idea that hey we could just answer on the show and then we don't have to come up with a topic for the episode (laughs) i thought that was a great idea and so we're going to go through the questions that she had right now some of them are pretty great questions i think the coolest thing is the class that she's in for which this is an assignment the class is called tabletop games and group leadership Oh man, that sounds like an awesome class. But she gives us no fewer than 14 questions. You ready for question one, Sean? Let's do it. When you were little, Sean, what did you want to be when you grew up? When I was really little, I wanted to be an astronaut. My dad is an electrical engineer, and so I was born into a nerd family. Ooh, astronaut, Star Trek, next generation. And then I think I wanted to be a comic book artist. 
for a while too. I think those are my earliest jobs that I wanted to be. What about you? I want to be a game designer. Oh, because <laughs> I've been playing board games with my nan ever since I was a little kid. And then eventually I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Then that changed as soon as I took my first psychology class in college. Then I wanted to be a college professor and clinician. Boom. Now here I am talking to you, Sean, living the dream, the childhood dream of game designing. Not bad. Not bad. Question number two, Sean, who were your role models or people that have positively impacted you throughout your life? So I'm assuming she's talking about people that I know personally, not like talking about Abraham Lincoln, but maybe not. Could be. I think it's open-ended. Sure. Why not Abraham Lincoln? What are you, racist? You don't like Abraham Lincoln? I don't. I don't like pennies. They taste weird. (laughs) My dad was one of my earliest role models. Uh, He's an entrepreneur. He started his own companies. And I think that gave me a lot of permission as I got older to start my own companies and start my own ventures. It's always been easier for me to start projects and say like, yeah, we could totally do this. And I think some of that comes from my dad making that a totally okay behavior at a very young age for me, where it wasn't like, oh, you need to go to school and you need to get a job and all these other things. He always very much encouraged being entrepreneurial. And so that helped with me a lot. Daddy boy and daddy boy. I changed Danny boy to daddy boy. My role models, I remember thinking this very specifically growing up. Spider-Man, Jackie Chan, biggest one was when I was in my late adolescence. Vegeta, Chris Sabat. Because when I met Chris Sabat at Board Game Geek Con, I actually walked up to him, was starstruck and said, Chris Sabat, oh my goodness, Vegeta changed my life. I want you to know that. And you know what his response was? He said, no, Vegeta changed my life. (laughs) Just probably more true. (laughs) Hey, Sean. Caitlin has another question. Question number three of 14. How did you become a game designer? Uh, we've gone over this sort of thing before, but I... But this is for a grade for Caitlin. Don't jip her grade or totally tanker. I got into game design. I'd always sort of noodled around with it, but how I became like a professional in the industry designer was Brian Pope of Arcane Wonders was working on their flagship game Mage Wars, and I had been a freelance graphic designer before that, and so I helped him playtest because we were personal friends, and I did some graphics for him, and he brought me on to work, and I worked for him for about a year or so and learned the industry, and then I met Alan and designed Two Rooms and a Boom together. And eventually we decided that this was starting our own company and building our own company was an opportunity that was too great to pass up. So I left Arcane Wonders and uh, we started Tuesday Night Games. What about you, Alan? I have kind of always been a game designer because you even made note of this going through some of my really ridiculous game collection. You'd open up a box and you'd see a note card in there. And Sean, I'm putting you on the spot. It's fine if you don't remember. But what would be on these little note cards in games that you would open? Just these crude pornographic drawings. Really like caveman pornography. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, um, Mm -hmm. usually it would be like house rules and solves or fixes for uh, older games that had been broken or, you know, you perceive to be broken in some way. Yes, exactly. So it's always been tinkering. And I guess that actually is probably a criticism to my personality, too, that I'm such a control freak that. When someone would come over to my place and they'd want to play a game, they'd open it up and find the official house rules. This is how we play Candyland in this house. (laughs) Do you have Candyland house rules? Dude, dude, I seriously want a YouTube channel so bad. Don't have time for a fraction of the creative things I want to do. One of those things I want are house rule episodes 
Candyland is actually a fantastic game with this really quick fix. You'll never believe. <laughs> you don't have to add anything or anything like, screw it, I'll just tell you. I'm playing Candyland with my niece and nephew, pretty much wanting to kill myself because it's so boring because there's literally no decisions that you make. You flip over a card and it tells you where to move. You just go back and forth. No decisions whatsoever. But you can make one of my favorite genres, as you can tell with That's Not Lemonade and World Championship Russian Roulette is press your luck. What you can do is you can keep on drawing cards until you draw a color that you've already drawn and then you bust and you don't move at all. Oh, I pulled a red. Oh, I pulled a double purple. Oh, I pulled a yellow. If I stop here, I can go to the red, to a purple, the next purple, and then a yellow. But I'm going to press my luck and go on further. Damn it, it's another purple. Now I don't get to move at all. And that way, if someone's in the lead, they're less likely to press your luck. You're welcome, world. That's Alan Girding's simple modification for Candyland. Open his Candyland box and you'll see that little note card right there. Not bad. But Sean, Candyland has some very interesting artwork. Caitlin's number five question is, what non-game art influences you the most? I really like, there's an old quote from Bob Fosse who directed All That Jazz and his big thing about movies, about whether they were good or not, was Take Me Somewhere I've Never Been Before, which I've slowly adopted. Even a bad movie, if it takes me somewhere I've never been, um, was worthwhile to me in that, like, I'd never been to that place before. But Sean, why don't you like Inception then? Didn't that take you somewhere you've never been? No, no, it didn't. Nope, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Moving on. Still hate Inception. Moving just, on. Just for those of you keeping record at home, still hate Inception. So I like uh, Wayne Barlow, um, who does this gorgeous, like, Dante's Inferno type art. Who are some of my other favorite artists. Tove Jansen, who did uh, the Moomin, Finn Family Moomin Troll thing. She's a wonderful Finnish artist. Just these people that create these sort of really detailed and intricate worlds really inspire me and get me going. Myself as well. You nailed it. I can't add anything else. It's any artwork that just transports me because I want to be a part of it. It's one of those frustrating things. We see it with so many adorable animals so much where we just want to cuddle them. It's frustrating. Oh my goodness, it's so cute. I just want to eat it. Ah! I feel that way with art somehow. Sometimes art is so good. It's like, I just want to be in that world. I just want to eat it. So instead of eating it, make a game around it. Ask me the next question. Let's let's you take the ball, Sean. Sure. Or do you not have the list in front of you? I don't. <laughs> OK, never mind then, Sean. <laughs> number six. What is your favorite board game of all time? Ooh, if we're just talking board games, it's probably just Go, the ancient Chinese chess-like game. It's simple. You could spend a lifetime getting better at it. I love it. I love it. I love it. After that, it's probably Fury Road by Milton Bradley, the post-apocalyptic car crash and burn game. Mad Max the game. Yep. Keep going. Mad Max the game. Yep. Following that up, it's probably Plato 3000 and Dungeons and Dragons if we're letting role-playing games in. But it's hard. It's such a contextual sort of thing. What mood am I in? Who am I playing with? How much time do we have? But all of those games are games I love and, and could play at the drop of a hat. It's an impossible question for me. The cliche answer I like to give when people ask me, what's your favorite game of all time? My answer is the next game. Boo! <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's a bullcrap answer. <laughs> but if you want to know some of my favorite games from my past, Hero Quest definitely stands mm -hmm. out. Hero Quest. And man, over Easter break, 
I was hanging out with my wife's family down south in North Carolina, and they watch a crap ton of the Disney show. And I want to tell you, probably three out of four commercials that would come on between shows were for some crazy board games. They all involve toys. So it's like toy board games. But in the past growing up, it was great having those games that were looked more like a toy than an actual board game. Dizzy, dizzy, dinosaur. You better watch out. It'll knock you out. It's dizzy, dizzy, dinosaur. Dizzy, dizzy, dinosaur. Knocks you out as he moves about. And then Tornado Rex. Oh, crossfire. <laughs> crossfire. <laughs> All those games you just wanted to play with because they were more toys than anything. I also really liked Mastermind. Sean. Yes. Seven. What initiatives or practices can encourage and welcome more women into game design industry? This is a great question, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it, but the number one thing for me, there's two ways to handle it. From the publisher's side, is hiring. You just have to hire more women, more people of color. And the big thing about this is just like look, just like spend 10 more minutes looking around because I think it's very easy to get into your comfort zone in terms of like the people that are directly around you. And I don't think it's wrong to work with the people directly around you or in your community. If this is something you value and want to be better at it, then just like just make an effort. It's not hard to be way better than you have been by just trying to hire more women, more people of color. Particularly for Tuesday Night Games, we're trying to reach such a broad audience. It really helps us to have a lot of diverse voices. Did you just call women broads? <laughs> we're trying to reach the broad audience. See? <laughs> See? This can be tough. I think there is value in diversity for diversity's sake, but I think a lot of things people forget are like, one of the reasons diversity is important as its own virtue is that people bring in different perspectives and that helps broaden your appeal or it helps you cover bases you didn't know were there. Just try a little harder and you'll do better. From the non-publisher side, from the gamer side, buy games and support people that you like. And that means like buying games by women or people of color or whatever. But it also means like reviewing their stuff it means telling other people about it and just like increasing visibility. Again, it's just one of those things that like you get to determine what you want to see more of in the world. And so, you know, vote with your dollar. You nailed it. Vote with your dollar. Be present at the dinner table. You mentioned it before. Bring it up. Mention that there aren't enough women and there need to be more women because if people don't hear this, then they won't know that they should be more inclusive. If you don't see appropriate representation in games, like all the characters you can be are old white dudes you should make mention of that man this game would be better if it wasn't nothing but old white dude characters because there's plenty of people out there that don't think you know who i want to be while i'm playing this board game an old white dude but i would say more readily from everybody person probably even listening to this if you're ever playing board games card games be more inclusive just around the table and that voice will be heard because it's still so male dominated in fact, on a recent episode, we had Haley Brack submit a Naved Knight submission. Haley, just coincidentally, is Sir Delton Brack's spouse. Bam! But what Haley said was that she was amazed at how there was no line in the woman's room at Gen Con. That is evidence that this industry is totally dominated by men. And a lot of that may be that it's intimidating for women to come in to Gen Con and other gaming conventions. I'm not going to walk in eggshells. There's going to be some creepers out there. So just creeping it down a bit and being more inclusive. 
here's the other thing that I'll say, and I think this is a huge problem in our industry right now, what we call sort of performative wokeness, which is that people who want to be perceived as being on the right side of an issue, but don't want to take any real action, that's hard in anything. Like if you have a value, taking action to actually make that value something that exists in the world is very, very difficult to do. But one thing that's also hard is, I don't know if you've heard about this, Alan, but some Kickstarters recently, a couple of them have added like uh, more women or more people of color as options in games, like as characters, as stretch goals, right? People freak out, of course. People freak out. It's not that that's not warranted, but the thing is, when you're trying to move the needle and you're trying to like shift public perception in the way that we like do things, I think it's helpful to say like, these people have the right idea and here's how they could do better. But usually what people really want to do is they want to feel that moral outrage and then display that moral outrage so they get the benefit of having been on the right side. When it would have been harder to do would have been to contact these people directly between the two of you and say like, hey, I think you're doing something really good, but you need to move beyond this. You need to you need to move into a place where like people of color and women aren't stretch goals, but are embedded in your core identity. This is good, but it's the first step. It's just, the, it's like why we don't shame children when we're trying to teach them new things. This is gonna be a monumental, huge shift in our industry and I get that it's long overdue and that patience is exhausted but if we really want to make a difference it means that we're going to have to like teach people and persuade people and so having a little bit of patience with people who are trying to move in the right direction I think is huge and it's totally bullshit that people have to do this that we have you have to consider like your oppressor's feelings when trying to change things it's totally bullshit the victims that we have in women's and people of color is way greater than the victims of like oh well we hurt that kickstarter creator's feelings because we said he was being shitty and racist yeah ab absolutely so yeah it's it's a complicated issue being angry being rude it's not against the law in the end what is your goal is your goal to vent or is your goal to make change and you could be making change with anger and being abrasive and being really offensive and that change happens and i'm really glad those people are out there because they could be clearing the way for other people to be more moderate with their progression and maybe be more diplomatic in their ways. But I think long story short, the end thing should be, what's your goal here? If you want to vent and you want to get that anger off of your shoulders, go for it. But if your genuine goal is making the change, that does require work. And I know that sucks. And I know it's so tough when you have these white knuckles to try to be calm and be like, how do you not know this by now? Again, the other analogy we used just last episode, and you even alluded to here, was it's the equivalent of yelling at your kid for not knowing how to do something instead of teaching them how to do it. Great question. Great question. Great question. Obviously, man, we're spending way too much time on this. Here we go. Number eight. <laughs> what is one characteristic that you believe every leader should possess? Good listener. All right. I will say leadership. Number nine. <laughs> what are you doing to ensure you continue to grow and develop as a leader, Sean? This one's tough. It just means that we have to have like hard conversations with each other. That you have to be held accountable to what you do. We have to constantly reevaluate like what victory looks like and how we're trying to get there. Our company's small. So like my leadership potential hasn't been tested as much as it has in the past where I've had to work with like larger groups of people. But listening is important because it can be very lonely and isolating to be a leader and you can start to wall off yourself because you feel like the pressures of being a leader outweigh the pressures of, you know, being somebody who works for a leader. So yeah, it's important to listen to the people who work for you, your partner, your spouse, you know, people outside your circle and just really try and get a good picture of really where you are. 
Perfect answer. I think eight and nine, I could combine them in sincerity. Unfortunately, I would say if you're a leader, you have to have that thick skin and you have to have that patience going back to what we talked about before, because you want to be able to be willing to admit when you're wrong and reevaluate because you will be criticized. Being a leader by definition means that you will be making the difficult decisions that no one else wants to make. And the reason that people don't want to make those decisions is because of the criticism. So being a leader equals criticism. Be able to evaluate that criticism and not deflect it, but absorb it and use it. Number 10, what is the most difficult part of being a leader? I just answered that question. Do you want to add anything? The leader should take none of the credit and take all the blame. And that's super fucking hard. But being a leader means that you wanted to get something done. There's a great like quote from this book, The Power Broker, I think, which is like, you'd be amazed at what you can get done if you're willing to not take credit for it. And I think that's a lot of leadership. Man, that's tough. That's really tough for the average person to do. I love this idea that the best leaders you never even know are leaders because they're just inspiring everyone else around them. So you don't even recognize them as a leader. Question number 11, Sean. What does a successful game look like to you? For me as a business person, the game has to sell and be profitable and keep selling and make more money. Like, uh, that's what a successful game has to do from a business standpoint. But I think from a gaming standpoint, I think there should be people who play it and have fun and enjoy it and want to keep playing it. I think a game where you say, you never say, I never want to play that game again is, is at least doing its job of being worth your time. But it's fun. A successful game should be fun to play. It should People should play it and enjoy it. That's why I think we have a good business partnership is you definitely come at it from the financial part more, where I definitely come at it. It's all about creating a memorable experience. I want something that I want to play again and again and again because I will be talking about it well after. So a successful game to me, by definition, I think is a game that you talk about in a positive way after having played it. Sean, I, this question I want to ask you, number 12, what is a typical day like for you? I get up, I go to the gym, I come home, I check emails. Most of my day in terms of like game designer work is answering emails and shipping stuff out and working at a QuickBooks and making sure that like we're selling more units than we sold last year. That's like a pretty typical day as like a publisher. And then occasionally like at night when I'm done, it's a lot of notes and drawing and like painting and, and trying to get like another game designed. But a typical day is a lot of just emails. That's like 80% of my job. For me as a psychology professor, my typical day is showing up to work, teaching some classes and constantly having students in my office, which I'm either tutoring, assisting or playing games. Yeah, that's right. A lot of times when students come in, they'll ask the golden question, why do you have so many games in your office? And then my answer can be, I'm so glad you asked. And that's the spider web in which I trap students to play games. Then I come home, take care of my dogs, and that's when I typically answer emails, have time for game design, but it's usually the weekends where I do most of my grading and game designing. Sean, what are you reading right now? Question 13. I'm reading Labyrinths by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, uh, which is a series of short stories all about sort of labyrinths and mazes and kind of like dungeons, that sort of thing. I'm reading a ton of role-playing games for the Ennies. The deadline's approaching for publishers to submit their stuff. 
For the uninitiated, Sean isn't any judge. Ennies are like the Academy Awards, but instead of for movies and acting and directing, it's all about role-playing games. And then I'm reading a book called Revelation Space by a guy named Alistair Reynolds, which is kind of like a sci-fi light horror, but like kind of gothic thing as research for my role-playing game mothership that I'm working on. I actually, every night or as often as I can, like to read to my partner, my romantic partner, Crystal, not you, Sean, when we go to bed and we are reading Fever Dream by George R.R. Martin. I've already read it before. She has not. And man, that is a page turner. Now, if some of you are listening to this thinking, man, I tried that whole Game of Thrones thing and it just wasn't good. I couldn't get into it. It was just too detailed. Well, you should try Fever Dream because it's much easier to consume, much easier to keep on turning those pages. You never have to think, who the hell is this character? Like you do in The Song of Ice and Fire. We've made it, Sean. Question 14. What advice would you give to an aspiring game designer? Uh, the adage for writers, read a lot, write a lot, I think really works here, which is like play a lot of games and design a lot of games. Don't work on that perfect game forever. Make a game, ship it, have people play it, get the feedback, know that it's going to be crappy, move on to the next game. Um, but you've got to be playing a lot of games. This could be a podcast in of itself. Every episode could be a different thing about game design. But inspiring game designer, one of the main things that I would definitely emphasize is be doing it for the right reasons. If you're doing it for money, stop, stop. Don't do it for money at all. Like anything, you should do it because you have a passion for it and you truly love it. The other thing I would say is backing up what Sean said is do your homework. If you're making a game, you best know what games to which it will be compared. And I would even say, make sure that your game is better, that not just you, but most people will play it would say, why would I ever play this other game that's similar to your game when your game clearly does the same thing, but better? Hey, we made it, Sean. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, we should end the episode, but I really don't want to because I really want to knight someone really quick. Let's get through this, shall we? All right. Getting geeky with Gamer Leaf, the podcast in which one man strives to level up his geekhood and helping you do the same one battle at a time. Now, let's get geeky with Gamer Leaf. Okay, Sean, so what do you think so far? That's intense. That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. I didn't do that intro at all. I haven't touched this. I'm leaving it as raw as possibly can be. Woo. Moving on. Wait, what was that? I'm not recording my own podcast. This is actually my Nave Tonight submission for what's that podcast name? Well, the one you're listening to, you know, Tuesday Night Gaming Podcast, or I forget all the other words they have included. But yeah, it's a game about, uh, it's a podcast about the games you play on or under the table or make and whatnot. It's a really cool podcast. So I recently found this a while back ago. Um, I don't know if it's been a month or longer, probably a couple months. I don't know. You'd have to ask Alan Gerding. Um, as I've been Facebook messaging back and forth ever since I found out that he needs more friends on Facebook. But anyways, 
I have been listening to that ever since I heard about it on the board game closet, and I haven't been able to turn it off. Actually, I stopped listening to one of my actual RPG podcasts. I won't leave any names or whatnot. Just because I really loved what him and Sean were doing with this podcast. So, yeah, I think it's awesome what they're doing. Now, this, yes, I've been binging. You totally ask Alan. I keep on sending a message back and forth because I am totally binging on this podcast ever since I found it. Anytime I can get to be able to listen, I will go ahead and do that for some reason. They told me I kind of need to lay off. It's kind of like crack cocaine, I guess, even though I've never done anything with drugs like that. But they said it was like crack cocaine because you know why? Because I'm going to go through withdrawals pretty soon because I just barely crossed over into the, I think I'm in between 105 and 110 episodes. And what, they have like maybe 120 some odd episodes out? So yeah, that's crazy. But anyways, um, I wanted to submit this to you guys so you can see. But yeah, so yeah, he was talking and I need to go ahead and cut back a little bit because I'm going to be suffering bad with the withdrawals. I'll be shaking over the place saying, where's my Tuesday night podcast? I can't wait till Tuesday. What? It's only Thursday. I gotta wait a little bit longer. No. Well, anyways, yep, so I better cut back, because I have a podcast called Getting Geeky with Game Relief, which is a podcast where we go ahead and get geeky. We cover RPGs on Mondays. Me and my family do an RPG game. Uh, We're playing Too Many Bones, which we backed on Kickstarter a while back ago. Right now we're doing the story. And it stops. And that's it? That's it. It just stopped. Is he okay? (laughs) He's okay. I know he's okay because he still messages me usually several times a day. When he says Benjen, I can't help but think Benjen Stark. (laughs) 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 Let's knight him. Let's do it. Let's knight this guy. Knave. Approach we nobles and kneel to allow us to honor thee. On behalf of all knights, knaves, and nobles alike, we applaud thine heroic and knightly contribution to this, the Tuesday Night Podcastle. Allow us to dub thee Sir Gamer Lee of the Tuesday Night Podcast. Now rise, rise, Sir Gamer Leaf, as the newest knight of the Tuesday Night Gaming Table. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at PlayTKG. Better yet, if you want to be knighted, much like Gamer Leaf, write us an email via podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. And I think, with that being said, Sean... This episode is quickly finished. Hey, 
Alan Gerding here. I just wanted to thank all the knaves, knights, and nobles alike for listening to this here episode. I also want to take the time to thank our fellow contributors. I'm talking about those people who email their knave tonight submissions, but also the B team. Talking to you, B team Will and B team Logan. Yeah, because these guys are recording episodes, so they have our back when Sean and I can't make it. Yeah, thanks for having our backs. I also want to thank SBJ, your missed man. You really helped us start this podcast out. So I hope things are going fantastic with your Pokemon podcast. It's super effective. I know it is, so keep up the good work. I also want to thank Sir Delton Brack for co-editing this episode and Sir Byron Morgan for helping with the show notes. There's a couple upcoming events, everybody. I want you to make sure that if you like this show and you're going to Gen Con, check out the live recording. You can get your tickets now. Go on to the Gen Con event website and you can just search Tuesday Night Podcast. Should pop right up. Get your tickets. But this weekend, oh my, this weekend is International Tabletop Day. People from all over the world playing board games. Yeah. So do it to it, yo. And perhaps I'll get some recordings and that'll be on the next episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. Peace, yo.